Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. And it means, Lord, that we come here with uh, an anchor. We, we come here with, with something to hold on to because we can spend a week and we, we deal with people and we deal with difficulties and we deal with trials. And, and it feels, Lord, that sometimes maybe you're not the person we thought you were. Maybe you're not the guy who is going to stick by us. Maybe you're not the one who's going to come through for us. And yet, Lord, as we come aside each Sunday, it's a chance just to pause and to, and to block out all those voices and to come back to, to the Word and come back to who you are and remind ourselves that you are the one who comes through. You are faithful. You are holy. You are just. You are loving. And Lord, sometimes we just don't always see the bigger picture. Sometimes we just see part of it. We don't always see the other parts that are in play. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come together, as we worship, as we sing, as we open your word, I pray, Lord, that the thoughts of who, you, who we think you are might be replaced by the truth of who you are. Lord, that we might see you in a fresh way. Lord, that we might see you in a clearer way. Lord, that all those different voices that whisper and pull us in different directions, Lord, that they would be silenced by just the by who you are. And so, Lord, we come to meet with you. Lord, we come to spend time with you. And we pray, Lord, that it would be time well spent. And we ask this in your precious and lovely and beautiful and holy name. Amen. John. Okay, so good evening again, folks. As we turn to Luke chapter 9, I want you to be mindful of one of the biggest questions that anyone could ever ask, and one of the most important questions to answer and to answer well, and that is where Luke is now starting to take us. He has spent now a couple of chapters putting pieces together, showing us some of the miracles that Jesus has done, some of the things that he has said, some of the things that he has shown us, and he's starting to put it all together. And now he wants his readers to start making decisions. He wants us to start thinking about how it all fits together and how it should impact us as readers. And so one of the most important questions that we have to ask is, number one, who is Jesus? Jesus. But almost more importantly, is that, okay, if we answer the first one, the second question then says, okay, well, who do, what does that make Jesus to me? Who does that make him in my life? Because it's one thing to say, well, he's this character that he did things. He, okay, but what impact is that going to have? Because we have to do something with Jesus. We either dismiss him as irrelevant, and then we ignore what the Bible says about who he is, or we then have to embrace who he is. And that takes a requirement uh, on our part then. Now, I know when you ask questions like this, that if I were to ask a group of 20 people, I'll get 20 different opinions. And one of the things that we're going to see is, even tonight, if you go by popular opinion, you're going to land yourself in hot water. If you go by opinion polls and you go by general consensus, that doesn't necessarily mean that you get the right answer. It's not always best to go by democratic vote. You have to make up your own mind. You have to make your own decision about who Jesus is. Otherwise, where does that take you? 
we have to make a decision. Now, over the years, there's been a couple of different opinions. Some believe that Jesus was in a scene. Say, okay, I don't know what that means. Is that like West Winds, or is that like, what, what, what is it? Is that like from the rough part of the Jerusalem? Well, actually, no. A scene was a, a member of a community that lived down by the Dead Sea uh, called the Qumran community. And a scene was part of the Qumran community. Uh, that was the community that gave us this Dead Sea Scrolls and preserved so much of Scripture for us. Now, the Essenes were strict. They were really strict, to the point where the Pharisees would look at these guys and go, those guys take this seriously. You know, I mean, it was really kind of quite intense. And they lived out by themselves in harsh climates, and some believe that Jesus kind of was one of those guys who was making a pilgrimage then into kind of the, the rest of society. Others have said, well, maybe actually he was a Pharisee because a lot of Jesus' teaching and his style was like one of the ancient rabbis called Hillel. And um, he was very refreshing. He was a master teacher. And some people say, well, maybe he was a Pharisee like Hillel. Others have said that he is a Galilean Hasid. That is, he is a strict adherent to the Old Testament traditional law, but he just so happens to be one who came out of Galilee, which was quite strange, but maybe he was just an Hasid. Or if you go to the Talmud, uh, some of the ancient Jewish writings, they say that Jesus was the illegitimate son, uh, son of a woman called Mary, whom they reckon was a hairdresser. Now, I don't know where they get that from, but they reckon that she was a hairdresser. Um, I don't know if she had like a salon down, down the street of Nazareth, or if she did nails, or if, you know, she did house calls. I don't know. Someone goes far to say, though, that she was impregnated by a Roman soldier by the name of Panthera. After she became pregnant, she moved down to Egypt, which the Bible does say Jesus was raised for at least a little part of his early childhood in Egypt with Joseph and Mary. But that uh, they would go to say that he was exposed and he learned some of the magical arts of Egypt. And that was how he was able to con the dumb Jews. Because they weren't as smart as the Egyptians. And what they're saying is that he was the illegitimate son of a hairdresser who got knocked up and became a con man. That he's not the real deal. But we still have to answer the question. Who is he to us? And Luke is starting to pull the threads and getting us to the point where we make a decision. He's shown the miracles. He's recorded the parables. And now the main character, Jesus himself, is going to raise the question. So if you remember this morning, we, we finished off with the feeding of the 5,000. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us this. Luke doesn't tell us this. Mark doesn't tell us this. But John tells us at the end of the account of the feeding of the 5,000, just after the miracle, verse 15, we're told that some of the people who saw and experienced that miracle tried to take Jesus by force and make him a king. They wanted to anoint him. They wanted to uh, coronate him. They, they wanted to make him and uh, make a spectacle out of it. Now, Jesus kind of disappears from that. He backs away and he takes them by foot about 25 miles away. That's like what from walking from here to Hillsborough. All right? I, I did a quick Google Maps search. So it's about 25 miles between here and Hillsborough on foot in the Middle Eastern song. Now, Matthew tells us that they are roughly around Caesarea Philippi at this point which had many, many temples and altars to pagan gods. And in the shadow of all those temples, in the shadow of all those worshipers of other gods and other deities, Jesus turns to his disciples and asks the question, who do the crowds say that I am? I mean, they've just tried to have a coronation. 
So Jesus asked, well, what do you make of that? What do you think they're thinking when they're trying to do this? And so they answer. Now, I've often wondered why it is that people thought that Jesus could have been John the Baptist risen from the dead. I mean, he hadn't been dead that long, I guess, but it seems like a strange thing to say. But when they say that you might be Elijah, that gets really ridiculous. Elijah's been dead 900 years. How on earth could they thought that Jesus was Elijah? Well, Malachi, the last two verses of the Old Testament, predict that the prophet Elijah would come back and... Sorry, this was left here. This is, I'm going down this way. Um, they thought that Elijah was going to show up, and Elijah will be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah is coming, and they anticipated Elijah that would come before the Messiah would come. And so there's all this talk of Elijah is coming. Elijah is coming. And to this day, if you've ever been to a Jewish Passover, there's always an empty chair left to the side for Elijah. Because the thought might be that Elijah might just show up, and of course he's going to go to Passover, and he might roll up to your house. And so you want to keep the door open and you want to keep a chair for good old Elijah. Now, there's similarities between Elijah and Jesus. Elijah was a miracle worker. Uh, he raised a woman's son from the dead and Jesus has raised people from the dead. Elijah was able to stop the rain for three and a half years. Jesus had incredible power over nature. He, he calmed the storm with a voice. And so effectively, the answer, look, Jesus, here's what we're getting. The people know that you're someone special. They know that there is something happening with you. You could be the forerunner promised. They think that you could be the guy. And then Jesus flips it. Okay. But what about you? Who do you say I'm? Because Jesus isn't interested just in general opinion. He's not interested in opinion polls. He's not interested in popularity contests. He wants them to come up with the answer for themselves. And Peter, I love it, he just goes, you're the Christ of God. You're not the forerunner. You're not the guy who's coming before the Messiah. You're the guy. You're the Messiah. And that word Christ in English comes from the Greek Christos, which means anointed. But it comes from the Hebrew word called Mashiach, which means the anointed one. Although technically, it actually means smeared, the smeared one. Uh, if you, the idea is that a person would be smeared with oil on the head and they would be anointed. Uh, kings were smeared. Great warriors were smeared. They were anointed. So the idea of the smeared one, the anointed one, the one who is set apart, the long-anticipated one before would be, Peter saying, you're the guy. You're the anointed one. You are the one who's been promised. But what he's also saying then is, Jesus, the crowd was right. The crowd was right to want to crown you because you're the guy, you're the Christ, you're the anointed one, you're the one who's going to wear the crown. Those guys were right to want to crown you. And so he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus says, don't tell anyone who I am, which seems very strange. But they'd already tried to do it by force and he will be king one day. But this wasn't the time for him to wear a crown. This was the time for him to bear a cross. 
So can you imagine the disciples going, uh, no, we've got to tell people, that's our job. We are the apostles. The word apostle literally means messenger. We are supposed to tell people, we're supposed to carry this message to people. What kind of messengers keep the message to themselves? I suppose that's something that we've been talking about this morning, isn't it? You know, God's timing isn't always our timing. God's ways aren't always our ways. And God sometimes looks to do something or looks to take us down a path that seems to make no sense. Why now? Why this? Why this timing? What's happening? Surely this can't be right. And, and yet you said, no, no, trust me. Trust me in this period of time. Uh, and wh- while we can be so excited for mission uh, uh, and it can be hard to keep this message quiet, here the disciples needed to hear why. They needed to understand something. They're saying, look, Guys, you haven't got the best part of the story yet. You've got a part of the message, but you haven't got the best part of the message yet because I've got to die first. I, and the cross has to come before the crown. And then when that happens, then you've got yourselves a message to tell the world. Then you've got a message to share. So Jesus is saying, look, you are going to be messengers, but you've got to wait for the best bit. You've got to wait for the cross. And then the crown will come. Now, they didn't expect this. Jesus is trying to tell us, but they find it hard because the Jews had this kind of built-in picture of what the Messiah would be, that he, there would be upheaval and there would be difficulties and there would be trials. Right? Well, the Romans kind of ticked that box. And then this guy would come and perform signs and wonders and push the Romans back. And then he would reign. And all the scattered people of Israel would come back and, and be reunited. That's what they were expecting. So when Jesus says, well, actually, I've got to die first, they're going, no, no, you don't. <laughs> no, that, no. And then he goes on, though, and says, not only am I going to die, but if you're going to follow me, guess what? If anyone's going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Such powerful verses, and there's been many a sermon that's been spent just in those verses. But what we see is two approaches laid out. You can deny yourself, or you can live for self. You can take up the cross, or you can reject the cross. You can set it down and leave it to one side. You can follow Christ, or you can abandon Christ and and follow your own schemes and agendas. You can live for Him, or you can live for yourself. You can lose your life with Him, or you can save your life for the world's sake. Those are the two approaches. Jesus is talking about discipleship. He says, listen, it's not just easy following me. You don't just get to follow me, and then it's crowns and blessings and easy street. That's not the Christian life. I wish it was, but it's not. And we love seeing people getting saved. We love it, and it's so exciting whenever we see people putting their trust in Christ and following Him. But guess what? What's even better than seeing people getting saved is seeing people grow and seeing them actually follow Him. It's one thing to say, I've made a decision to follow Jesus. That's great. But what's better than seeing a decision being made but actually seeing them act out on that decision, right? 
It's far better to actually see them living out that decision and seeing the fruit of that. What we should really delight in is seeing those young people, make, uh, young babies in Christ growing up and bearing fruit. Jesus never said go into the world to make converts. He said make disciples, followers, messengers, those who are growing, those who are acting out that decision to follow. And all of us, every single one of us, if you are a Christian, I don't care how long you've been a Christian or, 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 or how much you think you are capable, every single one of us is called in some capacity to discipleship. And so he says, if you want to, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Now, please see that, understand this. He doesn't say you need to deny things for yourself. He says, oh, you want to buy that car? Well, you're not allowed to. You have to deny yourself. Oh, all right, okay. Uh, there's a holiday. Ah, 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 you got to deny yourself that holiday. That's not what he's saying. It's not like you have to give something up for Lent that goes on. This is you denying yourself. It's not you denying yourself. He's saying, deny you. Deny yourself, not things for yourself. It's saying, don't make it all about you. Don't make it all about you. Don't live your life for yourself. Don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered. Deny yourself. Live for Christ. That's what he's saying. C.S. Lewis said, humility isn't thinking less about yourself but simply thinking about yourself less often. Get off the throne. Let him sit in the throne of your life. Deny yourself. And then he says, and you do that by taking up your cross now. I'm sure you've heard people talking about this. And um, they'll talk about some little trial that they can, it's inconvenient, but you know, they can put up with it. It's not really that big a deal in that sense. And they'll say something like, well, it's just my cross to bear, you know. Um, so I'm maybe not always the best at putting my dishes into the dishwasher. I, I might uh, put them dishwasher adjacent, um, which apparently doesn't count. Now, Ruth might say to someone, I know he's an idiot. It's just my cross to bear. Right? I, or maybe you'll say, well, you know, my boss is a wee bit mean-spirited, but that's my cross to bear. Or a mother-in-law or something, and I say, oh, it's just my cross to bear. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what it means. The cross was an implement of death. And to this hour, to this very hour, there are men and women around the world being crucified for following Christ still. You go to parts of the Middle East and there are people taking brothers and sisters in Christ and they are crucifying them and laughing at them simply because they believe in Jesus. And if you are to say to most people around the world, you've got to take up your cross, they understand what it means. It's not some little trial that inconveniences you. It's, it's not a little trial. It means put to death the old ways. It implies a new life, but you can't live a new life and still stay in the graveyard. Get rid of the old. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. Live for him. Whatever that means. 
Whatever that costs, whatever it entails, you live for him, you pursue him, you follow him. And so, as it was for Jesus, so it is for us. Before the crowns, and there are crowns waiting for us. But before we get to the crowns, we have to pick up our cross. And so about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Now, just let me make a wee quick note here because there may be a few people with questions about this. Um, If you don't have a question, that's fine. But sometimes people have questions and then if you don't answer them, they'll walk away going, (laughs) see, told you, the Bible uh, has problems with it. So let me just address it before you think it's even a problem, okay? Luke says it's about eight days. Yet Matthew and Mark both very clearly say it was six days. So is Luke mistaken? Is the Bible inaccurate? Is it inconsistent? What's happening here? Why does one guy say eight and two other guys say six? And so somebody might say, well, you see, there's a contradiction in the Bible. I'll give you the short answer because I could spend a lot of time talking about the accuracy of the Bible. But number one, Luke knows exactly what Matthew and Mark said because they both wrote their books long before Luke picked up his quill. Okay, So he knows that they said six. So he's deliberately saying something different. Okay, So to read them and then to try and lie or, or to be careless, all right, that doesn't make sense. He's not an idiot. So... The first way of saying it, well, he says it's about eight, okay? So he says, you know, roughly a week later. You could play around it with that, number one. Number two, you could say that he's probably adding two events in to bookend this occasion. The day that Jesus asked his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? The Jews, they would have counted part of a day as a day. So if you would say, look, uh, we're going to travel you know, we'll leave tomorrow morning and it's two days travel. You're thinking, okay, well, if we leave tomorrow morning, it's two days travel. We're there Tuesday night. But for the Jewish person, that, that's not necessarily how they would see it. They might say it's three days because by, when the sun goes down, then they count it as another day. And so if you're arriving even now at sunset, they'll say, okay, well, it's now actually Wednesday morning. And so we'll count that. that that's Wednesday. So you're actually, it's three days. And they just played with it differently. They kind of read it differently. And so Peter, in, uh, Peter look, in looking at this, and they extracted that confession from Peter, as well as this day of transfiguration itself. And so he says, okay, six days later. But then he said, okay, but you've got the day before with the confession of Christ. And then you've got the day after that with the transfiguration. And that's how you get your eight days. It was eight days from one event to the other. So you can slice it any way you want, but it's not really that big a deal. Just in case you saw, so hold on, I, I thought it was six days later, eight days later. It, it, it just depends on how you count the days. Anyway, verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay? I know we're only in chapter 9, but we're about six months away from Christ being arrested and crucified. 
we're already about two, over two years into his ministry, which just shows you how much of Jesus' ministry hasn't been recorded for us. We're already over two years in. We're about six months away now. And everything now is going to start pushing more and more towards the cross, which is really exciting. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Why these two guys? Why not some of the other heroes of the Old Testament? Why not like to Abraham, the father of the nation, the father of the, the faith? Or, or David, the great mighty King David? Why not those guys? Well, Moses represents the law, and Elijah is considered the great prophet, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets to the Jewish nation. So we have the law and the prophets both endorsing the Messiah. And oftentimes when you read the New Testament, they talk about the Old Testament, they talk about the law and the prophets have spoken. And so Luke will tell us even in chapter 24, after the resurrection, the two on the road with them, on the road to Emmaus with Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all of those scriptures the things pertaining to himself. And so he's, he, he, the, Mos, the law and the Moses is represented here by Moses and, and, the, and Elijah. Besides that, these two men had really interesting experiences themselves on top of mountains. Moses and Elijah also at some point were rejected nationally and their ministry questioned. So it's really fitting that these two guys show up. Now, Peter, who was, uh, who was where with him, were heavily, were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. You ever meet someone and their mouth kind of goes quicker than their brain? All right, this is what's most happening to Peter. He didn't know what he was talking about. Just he, he felt he had to say something, so he said this. Now, Peter's reaction to this, okay, number one, he was asleep. Let's not knock him for that. It was late at night. But let's look at what happens when he comes to. He says, let's build tabernacles. Let's make a monument to this. Let's celebrate this. Here it comes. You're the king. This triumphant time's coming. Happy days. Let's roll in. Let's celebrate. And the Bible tells us he was wrong to say this. But I kind of get it. I mean, if I saw this, if I saw Jesus in some sort of glorious appearance, and I see Moses and Elijah appear, and these guys are like heroes, I don't want to leave that. I don't want to walk away from that, as, as this is as good as it gets for a Jew. I understand this whole idea. Oh, let's stay right here. Let's savor it. Let's just live up on the mountaintop. I don't know if you've ever gone to like a a weekend away or maybe New Horizon for a week or it's a youth weekend or, or you do a week's mission or, or something and this, the Spirit of God is there and He's speaking to you and He changes you and He sets this fire in your heart and it's superb and it's exciting and it's like, oh, yes. And there's this part of you that goes, I don't want to go back to our evangelical church. I want to stay here forever. I don't want to go to work on Monday. I want to stay here forever. I, I, let, let, let's just make a month of it. Let, let's stay in Croatia. Let's stay in the mission team. Let's stay, let's stay here. I'm going to live here on the mountain. That's what he's saying effectively. I don't want to go back to work. I don't want to leave this. Field. I want to savor it as much as I can. 
And so they are here in the mountain, but what they will learn is that they need to be working in the valley. And it's wonderful to be up there, but there comes a time whenever it's done and the batteries are recharged, but they're being recharged by God for a reason because you've got to get back into it. Verse 34, um, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Again, a little bit spooky now, a little bit strange, a little bit eerie. They turn the haze machines on, on the mountain. There's this cloud. Now, Moses knows all about clouds, doesn't he? Um, he he's used to this. And um, Moses went up to meet the Lord, first of all, when he was in that tent of meeting. Remember, it says, the cloud of the glory of God came down and hovered. That Shekinah, the Shekinah, um, it was that cloud, the, the presence of God. It was a cloud that represented the, the glory of God and who he was. Moses would have been very familiar with this cloud that appears. The disciples, not so much. And so they're very much afraid. And a voice comes out of the cloud. If they weren't scared then, they were definitely scared at this point. A voice comes from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. See, Peter didn't know what he was talking about. Because in reality, what he was saying when he said, let's build three tabernacles, was saying, all you three guys, my three heroes, I want to remember all of you. You are like an equal playing field. I couldn't pick a favorite, so I just want to build three tabernacles to each of you. And it's so exciting. And I want to stay here forever because the three of us are so amazing. But the voice in the cloud says, no, Peter, these guys aren't equal. There, there, there's no comparison here. This, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You listen to him. Listen to him. And so he's exalting the son and taking away the prophets and the law because then when they disappear, it's only Jesus left remaining. And it's very, very significant. And I could spend another whole sermon on this. When he takes away the prophets and the law, I'll spare you that. Because I want to point you to one last miracle as we finish. Uh, verse 37. The next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is only a child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so much that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Now, what do you think Peter, James, and John are thinking right off the bat? They come down the mountain and they're stoked, they're pumped, they're psyched up. And then these other nine guys are going, guys, what happened up there? We saw that there's like lightning and there's like stuff. What was going on up there? Oh, I can't say. Mm. No, no, tell us. Oh, I can't tell you. And then they come down this mountain top and reality hits almost straight away because there's trouble brewing because it says, glad these guys had a great time because we've been fighting fires down here. Because why, what's going on? There's this man, and effectively, let me paraphrase what he's saying. See you, Christians. Yeah. And you always know you're in for it whenever someone starts that sentence like that, oh, don't you? See you, Christians. Hmm. Here we go. I thought you could help, but you can't. I thought you were going to do something, but you're not. After such a gloriously heavenly scene, he's confronted now with this hellish situation. I knew he should have stayed on the mountain. 
I knew we shouldn't have went back to work today. And you come back, and all of a sudden, you're challenged. You've been blessed, and God's been good. And all of a sudden, straight away, the enemy's trying to steal that blessing away. As soon as you get down, you think you can run, you can get a bit of momentum, and then next thing, you feel yourself getting tripped up because he wants to take it away from you. He wants to rally your cage and shake you up and take that uh, blessing away by challenging you. See you, Christians. Go back to the start of the chapter, Luke 9, verse 1. Uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he gives them power and dominion over demons and illnesses and the ability to cure. But it would seem that either it's either worn off or something hasn't been quite right in the communication because nine of his disciples, out of the chosen 12, these nine guys haven't been able to deal with it, even though quite clearly Christ has given them the power and the authority to cast out those demons. Something's happened. It's hard to know because the Bible doesn't explain it to us. And so people can speculate. I'm not going to go into it. And I'm going to skip over what Christ said because I want to make sure that you don't miss what he did. You see, these three, Peter, James, and John, saw the greatness of God on that mountaintop. But now that other nine... And these, this crowd are now seeing the greatness of God in the valley. And I believe we need constant reminders of the greatness and the majesty and the power of God. I think we need that to keep our faith alive and keep it going. I don't know if you think that or not, but I certainly do. And when I see and I hear and I see a steady stream of things like this, true stories, people getting saved after, after years of heartache caused by family and friends, or, and I see the majesty of God in someone who, who, who suddenly out of the blue says, listen, I've been away from God for so long and now I'm back. And you see it and it's exciting when you see a couple who's financially strained and they're praying and they're trusting God. And then from out of nowhere, seemingly, he blesses them sustaining them financially, and you go, yes, I see it, and it's good. You see the majesty of God. And story after story you can recount. See, here's the thing. Those three saw something on the mountain. But the rest of them were able to see something down in the valley because they came back down. Here's the deal. When we worship... It's like going up the mountain. And our life should have this worship component. Time spent on the mountaintop when we get to see God in a way like he just shines. And there's no other distractions and everything else it seems totally unimportant. The law, the prophets, church, all those things doesn't matter, not compared to who he is. We spend that time and we treasure it and we savor it and we can leave that time and we're psyched and we're excited and we're loving it. But we also need a second component to our life because so many Christians get, get frustrated that, because that's all they want. But that's an unbalanced life. We also need an evangelism component where we... can reflect... Christ then to the world. We've seen him on the mountain. We've seen him so clearly. He thrills our hearts. And then we let people see that. Can I confess something? 
in quiet times and in, in prayer times and when you're trying to get fed yourself, the easiest thing in the world is to lose sight of God and get focused on the church. Uh, for, for me anyway, because it's um, the vast majority of my life is tied up in, in here, in, in the work here. So it's my income, it's my worship, it's my family, it's, my, it's everything. And so often you can get distracted from thinking about and treasuring God. And you get distracted because you're focusing on and treasuring the church. And that's wrong. That's out of place. And it can be a real battle. And I don't know about you, but maybe there's things that can steal your focus away from God. And your focus is, God, will you work in this way? God, will you stir these people will you do that and it's not that those are wrong things to have but if it steals away your focus on God and treasuring him and being amazed by him it's like God having to speak out of the clouds saying listen you got to forget about the law and prophets Peter this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased listen to him focus on him pay attention to him and when we spend time in the mountaintop like that when it's just us and the person of Christ and we feel so close and we feel so there and and it's not always like that, but that's why we talk about those mountaintop experiences, but we're pursuing that and we're looking for that and we're longing for that. Whenever we have those experiences, that's whenever the people in the valley should see us. When we come out of that place, say, see you Christians, you're all talk, you're all this, you're all that. And then all of a sudden, but we can say, look, listen, let me tell you about who my God is. Let me tell you about what it is, because my experience is this. And your experience in me is something different. People need to see the glory of God, because how else are they going to be able to answer that most important question? Who do you say that I am? Let's live in a way that will inform that opinion. And the only way we're going to do that is if we spend that time on the mountaintop, but also we've got to learn to come away from that mountaintop. We need both. We need to wait in the mountain and then we've got to go witness in the valley. And that's the, that's the balance of the Christian life. We spend the time worshiping on the mountain and working and witnessing in the valley. And I think there's two groups of people here in this, morning, this evening. You're either in one group or you just want to be up on the mountaintop all the time and you're ignoring the work. You want the crown, but you haven't worked through the cross yet. You haven't lived from, you haven't followed him yet. He's trying to take you and do something with your life, and you're not going there yet. You're too busy clinging on to this experience. Let's build tabernacles. Let's just stay here. Let's savor it. Then there's maybe some other people here tonight, and you spend so much time working in the valley that you're like these other nine. You're just deflated. You're defeated. Nothing seems to be working anymore. You need to get up to the mountaintop. You haven't spent that time just longing for his presence. You haven't spent that time just savoring him because you're either treasuring the church or you're treasuring other things that are good and are valuable and are not bad in and of themselves, but they are not the most important thing. Christ is central. Christ is the treasure. I wonder what category you fall into. 
may we be better balanced as Christians where we find that rest and that recharge in the mountains. And then we get to work in the valley. We see God working. And, and, and as it says there, people then are astonished. Know what it says? Astonished at the majesty of God. That comes straight off the bow of spend time in the mountain. So who do you say he is? Who is Jesus to you? Is he someone that is treasured? That genuinely is the joy of your life? If not, get to the mountaintop. Get back there again. Save her. And it, it, it's not like a switch that can just happen. You've got to pursue it. You long for it. Go get rid of the other things. I pray that you'll find that balance. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to sing one more. And then, uh, Father, we thank you for the mountaintop experiences. Lord, we uh, struggle in those moments when people start off by saying, see you Christians. (laughs) Lord, help us to be people who can bring that Shekinah experience into work with us tomorrow, into school with us tomorrow, into uni tomorrow, into the post office, wherever it is we're going. Lord, that we'd be able to take that with us. Lord, the most important question we can answer is who, uh, who do we say that you are? Lord, I pray that each one in this room tonight would be able to say, he is my treasure. He is my king, my anointed one. The one who I trust, the one who I follow. Even if it means I have to pick up my cross, I will follow him. And Lord, we often want to romanticize this. We want to make it sound really good and really easy and really fun because we're so desperate to get people to sign up. Lord, the reality, and, and so many people in church tonight know the reality, that this is not always easy. And the world will so often tell us to, to forget about it and to, to find an easier way. Lord, I pray. I pray that we would treasure you in such a way that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen.